All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Halper. And uh, we took last week off, which I don't feel like we need to explain what Katie, Katie does. I do. I do. I'm a woman. I'm an apologetic woman. Pantene <laughs> warned us about this. Yeah, I just feel like we need to keep Pantene our... warned you? Yeah, they had some like anti-apology um, campaign, I believe. The hair product? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now that we're past that, we have a great show uh, yes. coming up this week. We have um, world-renowned virologist, uh, Dr. Robert Gallo, who's going to help sort out exactly how close or far away we uh, are from having some kind of treatment for coronavirus and uh, how all that works. And uh, we've got some other stuff we want to go through, including the four food groups, which um, begin with what, me this week? Yeah. Okay. So... Democrats sucking this week. There were a couple of things, right? How did you decide? Yeah. First of all, there was a pretty overwhelming vote by the Democratic Party's uh, platform committee uh, to reject Medicare for all. And uh, the the numbers were ridiculous, right? It was something like a hundred and something to 35. So it wasn't even close. I want to give Cecile Richardson a shout out for voting against it as the former head of Planned Parenthood, because that is a real commitment to women's health. Um, because if you, you should have the right to abortions, but you should not, and I do think you should, I'm not being dismissive of that, but it would be nice if you also had the right to healthcare, especially because so much of what Planned Parenthood does is about healthcare, and they really like to, to remind people of that. So, so what is the position now? We should only have the right to abortions? What, I guess so, <laughs> privately, privately paid abortions. Right. Heavily paid for abortions. So that happened. And, and you know, the, the significance of that, and we're going to get into this a little bit later because we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Democratic strategy heading into the, you know, the stretch run of the general election campaign. But it feels to me like the clarity of message is, is going to once again be lacking heading towards, the, towards November, which may not matter. But it's a thing again, and we can talk. We can talk a little bit more about that later. The Democrats also this week um, holding true to form, uh, the same form that's they've had for decades now, voted against in insignificant numbers, not all of them, voted against uh, an amendment to cut the Pentagon's budget by ten percent. Right. There was a House uh, amend amendment introduced by uh, Mark Pocan of uh, a Democrat from Wisconsin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, to uh, cut the Pentagon's budget. And it got beat 324 to 93. And significantly, that was with a lot of uh, a lot of Democrats who voted against it. It was a um, 139 Democrats voted against that amendment. So again, and then and this has been a theme throughout the Trump years that's personally driven me crazy is that for all the rhetoric about Trump being this existential threat and um, you know, Mussolini, unprecedented, yeah, yeah, all this stuff. I mean, they're 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 so expert at cranking out that language, and then when it comes down to all these questions of executive power, how much are we going to give you in terms of spying power, in terms of military power? They buckle like every single time. Not only do they buckle, they they they're active you know, participants in, in uh, keeping these escalations right. of, of uh, executive power. Uh, it's not like he's twisting their arms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, want it. 
yeah, the, the, the levels of military spending have gone up exponentially in the last in the last four years, and the Democrats have really offered basically no resistance to that. They barely talked about it. And, and you know, I, I remember particularly a couple of years ago when, when uh, there was a huge, his first really, really big uh, hike in uh, military spending. And the big controversy was that Trump had failed to mention John McCain's name uh, because McCain's name was on the bill. So... Not too much worrying about, you know, hiking the military budget by however many percent, putting it over $700 billion, but uh, let's let's worry about the decorum issue. So Uh, such a perfect example of everything that's wrong with uh, the resistance of Trump. Yeah. And and, and, say his name, say John McCain's name. Right. Exactly. And then also, you know, this is part and parcel for all the people who are complaining about the Department of Homeland Security, this this. you know, in, in the last couple of weeks, DHS also gets funding yeah. through some 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 of this some of this money. So I don't know. The, the hypocrisy feels pretty strong to me. So that that was basically uh, my Democrat suck this week. There's 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 more to discuss, uh, right. but the, those are two pretty big ones. I thought. All right. So for Republican suck, I thought you know we don't always do a Trump thing because because he's so played out and uh, everyone talks about him. But this I thought was entertaining. So if we could just go to democracy now, um, Amy Goodman sets it up pretty well. Something that Trump said and did. As the U.S. death toll from COVID-19 rapidly approaches 150,000, President Trump declared Tuesday much of the United States is COVID-free. Speaking from the White House press room, Trump lamented polls showing his approval rating is lagging far behind top infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci. So it sort of is curious. A man works for us, with us very closely, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx, also highly thought of. And yet they're highly thought of, but nobody likes me. It can only be my personality, that's all. President Trump then walked out of his Tuesday press briefing after a CNN reporter asked him about his retweeting of a video featuring Stella Manuel, an evangelical Christian doctor who's urged people not to wear masks and embrace the drug hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19, despite studies showing it offers no benefit and can cause deadly side effects. Emanuel has previously suggested alien DNA is used in pharmaceuticals and that gynecological problems are caused by sexual visitation by demons. I don't even know where to start. I mean, Trump is just, he's just hopeless, you know? He doesn't know how to get out of his own way. It's just in his nature. He just, he just can't leave that DNA, alone. His alien DNA. His alien DNA. Like, to be in politics for this long and to be president for this long and to not know that going into a press conference and talking about how your approval rating is, is below that of your colleagues or, or of someone who works for you. Yeah, that isn't going to fly. Like, I don't I don't even know that that leaves me speechless a little bit. I, I don't even know what to say. Well, as usual, he's kind of a truth teller because <laughs> I mean, he's a he also is a big liar. We've talked about this before, but but there is that like who said it, Trump or Chomsky game that we can play whether they would say the same things, except one would lament it and one would celebrate it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I, when Trump was asked why he wasn't doing anything about uh, to, with Saudi Arabia after Khashoggi was murdered and butchered and dis, you know, dismembered, he was like, oh, because we just sold them a bunch of, they just bought a bunch of weapons from us, which again is something that Chomsky would say. But right. Chomsky would be indicting, like, the U.S. for that. Anyway, but he is kind of right that part of the reason people hate him is because of his personality. 
Of course. Policies too, but it is, I mean, for actually it's like, you know, we've talked about this right now, just on this episode, how it's unfortunate that Dems oppose him on decorum more than they do on policy. So they like, you know, attack him for his, I mean, for his like very apparent narcissism that's on display here uh, and not for, but, but continue to fund his Department of Homeland Security, um, his Pentagon budget. And, and, and again, we're going to talk about this later because the Democratic strategy has been essentially to clear the floor for Trump and to give him the entire microphone and let him dig his own grave. And he basically could be owning the conversation right now, but all he's doing is is uh, is slitting his own throat every time he gets in front of a right. camera. It's it's kind of amazing to watch, but very emblematic of where we are as a country right now. So what do we have next? I believe you have an Isn't That Weird? We do have an Isn't That Weird. Here's a headline from World News Daily Report, the always reliable uh, news source. But this was a, uh, an Isn't That Weird that was sent to us by Sarah Labant's PhD and um, suggesting that uh, you might want to give this as a, uh, a look as a possibility for Isn't That Weird. And uh, it is weird. It's a great story. The, the headline is San, San Francisco police interrupt sex party involving midgets, emus, and a fountain of sperm, comma, 71 arrests. Uh, and I'm just going to read this because it's kind of awesome. Uh, the San Francisco Police Department SFPD interrupted an extremely lewd party early this morning in a luxurious residence of the Presidio Heights neighborhood, uh, arresting 71 people and seizing two boars and eight emus. Uh, according to SFPD uh, spokesman, uh, Lieutenant Doug Haraldson, officers were dispatched on the site at around 4 a.m. after some neighbors complained about loud music and, quote, wild animals running on their yard. Uh, Lieutenant Haraldson says the first policeman who arrived described the scene as, quote, a mix between an orgy and a circus freak show and immediately called for backup. And then there's a pull quote. Uh, and, uh, Dan, if you have the story... It's, it's kind of great. The pull quote is great. It's one of the all-time great pull quotes I've ever seen, actually. We should point out, um, when we looked to make sure that this story was true, uh, we found that it's actually an old story. It's from, it's from December, but it's just too awesome not to talk yeah. about. And, um, and look, our, our standards on this show are, they're, you know, they're, look, they're flagging. And that's just, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're going to talk about it anyway because it's too funny. Anyway, check out this, uh, this pull quote. Uh, down here, quote, it seems it was a thematic sex party for people with strange fetishes. They had midgets, bearded women, wild animals, and a large outdoor fountain filled with 50 gallons of semen. How do you get 50 gallons of semen? Is it human or or, or, or porcine? I don't know. That's a lot of semen. Or emu. Or emoon. <laughs> emoon? Yeah. <laughs> What is the collective animal uh, descriptor for? Yeah, you're right. I, mammalian. I mammalian? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, if we're going to talk about the word that, that would be like foci or porcine, right? Oh, or oh, or, or larine. Right, emo. Right, right, right. I got it. Yeah. And what? There's another good pull quote there. Yeah. It, quote, it was an extremely delicate operation. Hundreds of naked people trying to flee with emus and boars with ball gags in their mouths running around. It was a very chaotic scene. It took hours for the police to sort things out and identify everyone. And a total of 71 people were arrested on various charges. Uh, again, this happened before the pandemic, but um, right. 
uh, this uh, makes me think that my life has gotten extremely boring in my old age. It also isn't that terrible because I don't think the boars and the emus consented. No, that's why there were, I think that's probably why there, there were arrests. Otherwise, it would just right. be a bunch of uh, oh, yeah, you're right. presumably cons- consenting adults, right. right? And a huge semen fountain a huge fountain filled with semen of some sort right so so that happened that was weird um what do we have for isn't that terrible well for isn't that terrible um this is another thing suggested by a fan of the show i want to give a shout out to um at underscore marlar underscore and this is uh as marlar suggests uh this is a story that really uh suggests that the big shark industry must be behind this really disturbing story uh which is that there was a uh, a shark attack woman suffers leg injuries in shark mauling off far north queensland queensland ambulance service is reporting the woman was attacked by a shark and her injuries are significant but the important part of this is that she said i still love sharks <laughs> i still love sharks sharks are beautiful a 29 year old woman who was repeatedly attacked by a shark off cairns in north queensland this morning appears in good spirits as she's taken to hospital for treatment can we play the video in that new york post article dan i still love sharks sharks are beautiful <laughs> <laughs> Now that is like some Stockholm syndrome stuff. I think that's like really unfortunate. I don't like the way, first of all, you know I'm anti-shark. I know you're anti-shark. And what this does is this kind of hijacks what should be a very powerful anti-shark story and makes it, it turns it into pro-shark propaganda. There were doctors on scene at Fitzroy Island and they provided first aid. She ended up with a possible fracture of the lower left of the left lower ankle and some lacerations from the shark bite. At the time she was relaxing and swimming on the island, she's actually doing a shark documentary and it's her day off today. Okay, if the leg had been gone, would she still love sharks? That's that's actually a really good point. Look, this woman literally, she's literally a shark propagandist because right. she's making a documentary about them. To be fair, as you said, it was just sounds like a little gnaw. Yeah. And like if Bodie, my parents' dog, gnawed me, which she has, she's nipped me in the past a little, you know, I, I still love Bodie. Right. I haven't ever been hauled away in a stretcher because of Bodie inflicted. I mean, if she ate your amygdala or something like that, I think it would be a much more serious thing, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't, yeah. But what, sans amygdala, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to form a very coherent moral judgment. <laughs> I still love Bodie. <laughs> I still love Bodie. Bodie's beautiful. She is. She is. I mean, I'm pro shark, so, so uh, this, story. this story doesn't bother me as much. Although it's a little, uh, I, I think the the it's 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 very post millennial behavior to be we- wheeled out of a, a helicopter and be thinking about the media impact of right. your uh, of your of your exit. Was she wheeled? Uh, oh yeah, she was wheeled out, not wheeled onto it. Right, she was arriving. So Joanne Reed has a new show called The Readout. Um, she replaced Chris Matthews because I guess MSNBC has a you know, a seven o'clock spot for virulent anti-Sanders uh, hosts that right. they swap in and out. Uh, so uh, she replaced Chris Matthews of Fartgate, among other scandals. And uh, she had Michael Moore on her show. Uh, and the people, the blue MAGA people, as they're called, or the, you know, 
wino moms or resistance Twitter or Mick resistance, they were not having it. And he was trending on Twitter and people were like really mad at Joanne Reed for having him on. People had been angry at him. Uh, well, they're always angry at him. Radical centrists, I'll call them. Uh, they're always mad at him, even though he predicted that Trump would win in 2016. And then uh, when Trump had that indoor rally, he predicted more people would go than did. And people were upset about that. I don't know why that's like how that's pro-Trump. I mean, it seems like the whole thing is that you should be vigilant. And it's weird that the same people who call Trump and, you know, an uh, unprecedented existential threat, Cheetah Mussolini, uh, why would they want to to be so cocky and confident about his chances if the goal is removing him? Right. Um, so here he is on Joanne Reed, and um, it's not that like there's nothing that radical, but I just think it's interesting that people were flipping out about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and Michael, I know you. I, I, I assume you want to get in on that. I mean, you're you're giggling, so I, now you have to talk about it really quick. Well, I just Michael. i I want to caution everyone: do not underestimate the evil genius that is Donald J. Trump. Um, there are many examples throughout history, whether it's uh, Henry V facing the French on St. Crispin's Day. They outnumbered him four to one, and uh, he was supposed to lose, and he didn't. And uh, Or jump ahead to the 1995 NBA playoffs. The Knicks are ahead with 15 seconds left, way ahead of the Indiana Pacers, and Reggie Miller scores eight points in nine seconds with 15 seconds left. And that was everybody. You had to go there, didn't you? You had to go. Well, there. I'm just. I know it's tough for New Yorkers you had to, to, go have to there. remember that cut this. That me deep as a Nick fan. That hurts. I know, but but that's that's my point though. All that the hurts. Knicks fans sat there so overconfident, you know, licking their chops. Yeah, oh, we got this one in the bag. You cut me and deep, then, Michael. Boom. Mm. boom. I, I thought I'm we were just, friends, Michael. I thought we were friends. I thought we were friends. I mean, as of course, as a diehard, long lifelong Knicks fan, uh, he was cutting me deep as well. Um, I'm sure you never, remember that moment. I'll well, never forget yeah. Reggie, Reggie Miller. Miller. Yeah. That Reggie Miller moment where he just totally drained all those threes. He drained, I mean, like at least seven threes. <laughs> I don't think it was seven, but it was a bunch. Four? Yeah. It was three. It was definitely more than three, right? Probably, yes. So the issue here is most of the polls show that uh, Biden is way ahead in the election. And there's a general sense that um, that this time around, it's not going to happen, that he's not going to come from behind and not going to surprise anybody. And and there are lots and lots of reasons demographically to think that, that Trump is in more shape than he was last time. Personally, if I were betting, I'd probably bet that he would lose. But the fact that people are still reacting in a hostile way to the suggestion that that might not be the case uh, suggests that we haven't learned a whole lot since right. 2016 when, let's not forget, the entire media landscape made two massive bad calls with Trump. And the second one with the general election was actually the less egregious one. The The biggest bad call that they made was, was the one where basically every pundit and data journalist assured us absolutely, that, that Trump was never going to win the nomination. And this right. was when he was winning uh, in the Republican primary, according to every poll, and there was every indication that he was going to keep winning. And they just kept insisting that it was never going to happen. And there was 
you know, it, it, it was uh, the, the media version of a dream is a wish the heart makes. They just could not, people could not wrap their heads around the idea that, that Trump was going to win. And I think that's a little bit what, uh, of what's going on now. And I think it's a good thing for us to talk about here is, are people being overconfident in the, the November uh, picture in the same way that they were last time, or is something really different this time? Because I, I do see a lot of similarities between this year and in 2016, beginning with the fact that the Democratic strategy seems to be based entirely around Trump's negatives. Now that might be out of necessity more this time, but, but it's still pretty messed up. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, you know, we mentioned the Democratic platform not passing Medicare for all because we have a presumptive nominee who is not for Medicare for all, even though the majority of people in this country are for Medicare for all. Well, especially during the pandemic there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what we've seen is that the Dems are just running Dems from like ranging from Biden to Andrew poster maker uh, Cuomo are just running on not being Trump and they are doing whatever they can do to not be at all responsive to what the people want or to get away with like austerity or to get away with being Republicans um, fiscally, at least. And Biden not conceding anything. I mean, some delegates said that they threatened that they wouldn't vote for Biden if if he if the the platform did not have uh, Medicare for all. And of course, it doesn't, which is like an example, I think, of how the, the left doesn't have a lot of leverage at all right now. And we won't. I mean, politically, politically. But, I mean, ele- electorally oh, electorally but what well i mean let's let's take a look at where what what biden looks like re- recently okay. uh, dan if you could we could see that clip good afternoon everyone welcome to kingswood community center actually that's the one down i used to work as a joke you didn't know where we were anyway <laughs> it's uh it's, it's great to be here and uh uh first of all that slogan, "Build Back Better," what does that even mean? I feel like there's a product it would work for. I mean, it like could Home be Depot? like an Home Depot, like an oil change or something like that. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's it evokes literally, literally nothing for me. Oh, uh, it evokes nothing and home repairs at the same time. <laughs> or maybe, maybe, doing. maybe a back treatment. You know, it could be like an icy hot oh, type of thing. Or back better. Oh yeah. yeah. Or a workout. Or a workout. Build back yes. better, like or baby got back better, like that's what I was thinking the whole time, honestly. Yeah, I'm Sir glad you named the elephant in the yeah. room. Yeah. Oh my god, remember right. Sarah Palin wrapped that? That's right. But no, look, if he's if he's in this kind of shape and then then this makes then it suddenly starts to explain why the Democrats are anxious to avoid debates in the fall. Right. There's a couple of things going on here that um we're not seeing a whole lot of discussion about in the, in the press because everybody's so obsessed with all these other topics. We're forgetting that this cosmically important election is going to happen in, in a matter of months, like a hundred, hundred days from now. And a lot of the same things that are, that were present in the last election are, are again, problems for the Democrats. Like what would you say the, the chief appeal for the demo i mean what, what democrats are actually excited about this choice are is is there a large number of them do you james, think james carville carville okay maybe you know uh and then we're seeing all sorts of polls 
And I know everybody hates this poll because it's from the Cato Institute, but there's huge, there are polls that are consistently showing that the large numbers of people, particularly the majorities of both Democrats and independents are, have political opinions that they're afraid to share, which could mean lots of things, but, right. uh, but we saw that last time. Right. Too. It could impact voting, you're saying. It could impact, it could impact polls. It could, it could mean that the polls that we're, we're watching are unreliable. And that combination of a lack of enthusiasm, which is always a bad omen, uh, the fact that people tend do tend uh, in a crisis, they tend to vote for the incumbent, even if it's Donald Trump, I, 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 I think there's going to be some of that. And then, you know, the, the problem of the polls being somewhat unreliable because there are people who just don't want to admit that they're that they're Trump fans who are out there. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I go both ways about this. I'm not really sure. What do you how. think the Dems could do to actually make themselves more? I mean, with Biden, what could they do? Their options are somewhat limited. But what could they do to make themselves more victory adjacent? I mean, they just they, they haven't really articulated a whole lot since the COVID crisis began, except to, to bitch about people who don't wear masks, which, I'm, which I get, okay? Right. I mean, like every time I go outside and I see people without a, without a mask, I, I do get a little annoyed. But as a political strategy, between that and kneeling in Kente cloth scarves, I, I, right. I, I'm not seeing a whole lot. Like if they had some bold plan that people could feel like they were going to get immediately upon election like this is this is what we're going to do right away the the, the instant we, we take office we're going to do this we're going to make sure everybody gets health care until this thing is over we're going to enact x y and z policy to make sure that um we're we're fighting the virus i don't feel right. like that message is really being spread at all and you know and and that's a problem because they're they're, they're relying on donald trump to shoot himself in the foot which he, he will do you know, consistently. Well, and, and Biden will have him do that, too, instead of the heart. <laughs> right. Or he'll train right. the cops to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. Because he doesn't want him to. He wants to shoot, but not have it be lethal. Right. I don't know. I, I, I think this is a this is a moment where where we're, ha- we're seeing a lot of the same things we saw in 2016 happen again. A lot of the same arrogance, a lot of the same inability to think about what's actually happening is being set aside because people are put are putting way too much uh, stock in polls that show that that this, this matter is already settled. Right. I mean, there's this weird inco- like there's also this weird inconsistency. I feel like where people really are talking about, and I think the stuff that's happening in Portland is terrible. But like people are saying he's not gonna. And actually, you brought this up when we were talking the other day, like that he may not accept the election results if he loses. Right. So, like, how can people, how can the same people saying that could happen, how could they be so chill and relaxed about his losing? Well, right. Yeah, there, that's the other thing is, and I, and I, I think we both, we, we talked about this too, is that there's a little bit of a boy who cried wolf situation right. going on yes. here, which is that there, there have been so many uh, scandals about things that Trump has said and done over the years where we've been told this is the end of the world. This is the worst thing that's ever right. happened. Um, and you have to tune in, you know, right. continuously for the next 48 hours. And, right. You know, in case the walls are closing in. The walls are closing in. Oh, my God, Jeff Sessions has been, right. you know, he's going to fire Jeff Sessions. You better go out in the streets. And then he does. He goes and he actually says something that's legitimately, I think, like way over the line, which is the, 
this whole idea of not uh, accepting the the election results or not being sure if he will. In a wide-ranging interview with uh, Chris Wallace uh, last week, he said that the the mail-in voting due to the, the pandemic could, quote, rig the outcome. And when Wallace asked, are you, are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? Trump responded, no, I have to see, <laughs> which is right. terrible, right? I mean, like, that's that's legitimately something that that people should be freaking out about not and like way more than a gazillion other things that they right. ha- actually have freaked out about. And, um, you know, you combine that with both eventualities being pretty bad, right? Like either he re- loses and doesn't re- accept the results uh, or people are being too cavalier about the results because they, again, have a sense of overconfidence right. uh, heading into November. Or is it even overconfidence? Is it is it like this weird apathy that's set in? Like people are in burn it all down mode. Like the election is even, I feel like a secondary consideration now for people because they've moved past that. They like- they, Well, it depends <laughs> they, who we're talking about. That's true, right? But uh, uh, there was a tremendous amount of political energy that occupied the minds of people across the spectrum, you know, on the blue side of the aisle even four or five months ago that was directed almost entirely towards electoral results. Right. And now that seems to have just gone up in smoke among other things, because the campaign isn't really going on right now. Right. But, and but, like, uh, unlike Bernie's like Biden's certainly not going to be releasing, you know, like doing what, I mean, the more he's out of the camera, the public eye, the better. So, right. yeah, I mean, they're, so they're, it's not like online campaigning either, or it's, it's an amazing experiment in trying to win an election by being as invisible as possible. Right. It goes against every conceivable campaigning instinct. But this would be the second time on a row something crazy like that happened. I mean, I'm convinced Trump, in a lot of ways, was actually trying to lose in 2016. Yeah. Uh, his family certainly didn't want him to win. He, at the beginning anyway, was was acting like somebody who was was completely throwing political caution to the wind yeah. and and didn't care about the results and acting like he was hoping just to get a big constituency that he could parlay into a media show or something right. like that. And yet it turned into a successful campaign strategy. This time around, we might have somebody win the presidency by not campaigning, which is which is even weirder. Wow. What a metaphor, though, for the Dems. Winning by not talking. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's exactly just we're not Trump. Right, exactly. Build back better. Build back better. What the fuck does that even mean? Don't be Trump. Well, it's make America great again. And they're kind of almost like taking that, but saying that they're going to be more effective at it. Build back better. Build back better. I mean, that implies that something's broken, right? And needs to be built back. Maybe they're just, I mean, and this is also a perfect metaphor. They just want to reinstate the status quo like the pre-COVID status quo, which is, so, I think, a lot of what's making the left to leftists who are who are either reluctantly or kind of like, no, no, there's no enthusiasm. So I won't say enthusiastically, but reluctantly or kind of urgently imploring people to vote or making the case to vote for Biden. I do think that that's what, again, it's a harm reduction argument so if you listen if you listen to biden on the stump his rhetoric actually oddly enough sounds a lot like donald trump's rhetoric we're the don't forget we're the united states of america we can do anything we we, uh, if we put our minds to it 
And it, a lot of it is this nostalgia-fueled right. uh, thing where he talks about how great, what, what a great country we are. Nobody believes that. Like that, that, that surface rhetoric that uh, ostensibly drives the Biden campaign it, it isn't what his crowds are actually responding to. What, what the, the, the subtext of his message, which is like one, one level below that, is we're going to turn the clock back four years to the to the pre-Trump version of America, and right. I'm the best representative of that that, that exists, right. and uh, and that's what that's what the promise is that we're gonna we're gonna go back to that. But I don't even think people believe that, believe that anymore. I think believe the, that he could do that or that he should do that. Either that right. like like there 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 is a huge portion of, of the Democratic electorate that doesn't want to go back to the Obama years, and then there's another por- uh, segment that would probably be happy to, but doesn't believe that he can. Right. So really, really Biden, all he really re- represents to most Democratic voters at this point is just a vote to get Trump out of the White right. House. And, you know, is that that wholly negative message going to be enough to carry the day? I mean, it could be. It could be, right. But, but I, 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 I'm, I'm amazed that more people are not worried about it because this is, this is what happened in 2016 is that we in the middle of the race, a whole bunch of people who are covering the campaign started to notice that the Democratic crowds were just not all that stoked and and that more people were turning out for, for say, Bernie Sanders than they were turning out for the actual candidate, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, there, there, people had this discussions like, is that really an issue? Like, should we, should we worry about that? And it was kind of decided that no, the polls tell us we don't have to worry about that. But yeah. in the end, we did have to worry about that. And why isn't that a problem this time? I don't know. Are Biden defenders and enablers like afraid that if they if people say that Trump could win, people will just be bummed out and won't believe in Biden? I don't think it's logical at all. I think right. people just don't like to even in, uh, countenance anything that sounds like bad news or even the possibility of bad news. They don't even want to think about it. What, what they, they're, the whole process of being a media consumer now is just to avoid um, unpleasant right. thoughts. And so, and so things like this, you know, we had this huge election coming up. All people want to hear is, you know, it's going to turn out the way we want and that's fine. We don't, and that's why there's a negative reaction against people like Michael Moore, even though he was right last time. Right. I know. Uh, that is so stunningly like, right? Can't, so, it's almost like you can't make it up. Like, right. what, like, but also, I mean, isn't it, um, it's also because if we if people acknowledge that Trump were, were a threat, not were a threat like to democracy, but like an electoral threat, they'd have to do stuff that probably would upset the donor class. Right. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, the, 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 they could still have plans. They could still say something that that, that would make us a little right. bit more excited about they're lying. The, yeah, could, even, what, they don't even pander to us. anymore. they don't even yeah. lie to us anymore. Anyway, that was weird. Um, you know, it. it it's a little bit in the news because there's a whole bunch of polls that are kind of contradictory that are coming out right now. But I think it's it's getting to the point where we have to start talking about what what actually is happening with this election and and uh, is it going the right way? Yeah. All right. So we have a really uh, interesting guest for this week. It's uh, Dr. Robert Gallo. He is the uh, Homer and Martha Gudelsky Distinguished Professor in Medicine. He's the co-founder and director of the Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and he's the co-founder and international scientific advisor of the Global Virus Network. Uh, And the reason we want to talk to him, this is a a, a very famous scientist who 
uh, is the co-discoverer of HIV. He's the guy who discovered the HIV blood test. Uh, he discovered HTLV, which is one of the uh, first retroviruses that causes leukemia. Um, and so he's, and he's playing a, an important role in the research of, uh, of COVID. And we wanted to uh, ask him a bunch of questions about what he's up to and what, what we can expect from some of these other uh, vaccine ideas that are coming out. And um, that's coming up right now. Yes, I've been in science for, Jesus, about 50, let me think, about 55 years. Wow. I did yeah. my first experiments, well, when I was, actually, I was 19 in my garage in my home. Wow. I back. I decided I read a pamphlet. I, this is one thing I had was always dare. They said, no one knows the function of the thymus gland. I said, oh, well, this summer I'll find out. And so I, you know, had no research experience whatsoever. My first year in college, I sent all my surgical equipment home, sent my mother around 200 mice and uh, <laughs> oh my kept them in the garage for about six weeks till I came home. And I learned three things. I, you know, I dissected to get the thymus out, right? And see what happens to the mouse. And I found out they all mm. died 67 in a row. So I said, boy, the thymus is really important. But of course <laughs> I cut the aorta, mm. arch of the aorta in all of them right. and over the heart. And I learned three things. I would never be a surgeon. <laughs> Number two, you really need to walk before you can fly. You need, you need some technology. Even the journalists must learn to have, be able to scribble, right? That is true. They must be able to think when the BS is coming and when it's real, etc. <laughs> and uh, the third thing is I learned my little Italian mother was not so, so always so sweet and kind because one day the mice all disappeared. <laughs> really? I don't want to say what happened to those mice. Yeah, she got fed up because the skin was everywhere. And I was getting nowhere and, you know, throwing things around actually and not very happy. And so the mice just simply went away. And it took years before she told me what happened, but I don't want to tell you what, what she did. It's really Did bad. she cut their thymuses out? <laughs> she didn't. <laughs> I, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> was it painless? She just had this little smirk and grin on her face. Okay. What she okay. did was she obviously got rid of them. Right. 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 And you know, and it was only 18 when I did an autopsy. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't even interested in science or medicine or anything else. I was interested in basketball and girls really, to be honest, but then we don't have to write that down. <laughs> then uh, I had a bad experience, very, very bad experience. My sister had a very right. leukemia and my parents left and I didn't see my parents for almost two years. And then she died. She died miserable. And I saw her before she died. It was a horror show. And then my father, I was, you know, just into basketball and so on. And then my father really kind of cracked up for years. And uh, he became friends with a pathologist who made her diagnosis. And that pathologist took me under his wing. He was the kind of the first rationalist cynic I ever met. You know, critical old doctors and very rational, you know, quiz, quizzing everything. I never saw that before in my family. And uh, I got close to him. And he was, he rarely smiled. He didn't have any sense of humor at all. Was, but one day there was an unclaimed body. He said, you've seen a few, do it. And he walked out. So I tell you, it was, that was a horror. That was really awful. I mean, you forget the mice. If right. you're with a dead body and you got to do the complete dissection and explain why he died. So you did know? you figure it out? You had, it was up to you to. Yes. At 19 years old. Yeah. Well, it was 18 or 19. I don't know. No, I was, yeah, it was the same age. It was probably the same summer. It was 19. Yeah. 
it was not easy. I mean, I was reading about you and and your sister, Judith, uh, right, was her Judy, name? Yeah. And so was it more just inspired by the, um, like a humanitarian or humane um, orientation? Than- I don't know if it's humane. That's not the right word. I, I certainly know better than the average Joe or whatever you want in those regards. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's humanitarian. I think it's just it was dictated and just had no choice. I, you know, I met doctors in Harvard, Dana Farber Center. My father became, became cl- close to Sidney Farber, who then they named it after uh, Sidney Farber Children's Hospital. And then it became the Dana after a rich person who I guess donated Dana Farber Center. And um, when I went to see my sister, I saw doctors doing research. I didn't understand it. You know, what's that? You know, what are they doing and why? But then it became serious and I broke my back playing basketball and I said, okay, that's that. I was totally depressed. And then I began thinking I I better become something other than a nonsense, less than mediocre basketball player because I'm not going to go any further. Right. I mean, I could play high school, but where am I going with this crap? And, you know, I got to get serious. There's more to life than just uh, dating girls and playing basketball. And, you know, my thoughts turned toward my sister, yes. And I, and so it's not humanitarian. It was just like, okay, you know, I had, uh, everybody's different. You know, they, they think scientists are the same. They're, they're as different as you guys differ, then barbers differ, then lawyers differ. They're all different. And personality-wise, I, I like uh, gambling. Mm-hmm. I like the dare of it all. I like the upstream more than the downstream. When it becomes practical, you got to do it. The blood test for HIV, we did. You have to do it. But, you know, related to this damn thing and everything is practical, right? But I much prefer if you're presented with a problem that's it's not going to be newsy. You know, it's not really newsy stuff. It's more like, how do you know this disease is caused by a virus? Why do you think so? And what kind of a virus do you expect? And I always thought to myself that tropism of the virus will tell you something about what it does meaning your target cell. Mm-hmm. Its strategy to survive will tell you something, and our immune response will tell you something, and then you can see what kind of disease that should fit and start with that. And so it did serve me pretty well, and I got involved in blood cells, blood because, yeah, leukemia. And the irony is when I was sent to NIH, not sent, when I went in a very competitive time in lieu of Vietnam, um, I wanted to learn technology and research, right? And the MDs had to, because there was no place to go at the time. There weren't centers of excellence in diabetes and this and that and the other like there are today. There were just three cancer centers, Roswell Park, MD Anderson, and Sloan Kettering, and there wasn't anything else. I mean, that was it in terms of centers of excellence and something. So you had to go to NIH if you were an MD, chasing the PhDs, which is what I was doing, trying to learn technology. And then one, two years became three, became four. But when I first arrived, the guy I'm supposed to work with left to go to Duke. And I got sent, where do you think? I never wanted to see patients ever again, right? Mm-hmm. I went to the Childhood Leukemia Awards for a year, just refining death. I mean, that was it. So that's so, what know. I wanted to ask because you, oh. was it your sister's, was it, was it that experience or, or because of your sister? Because you ended up discovering HTLV, which if, right. if I understand yeah. it correctly, yeah, yeah, is the yeah. first. Oh, I ended right. up discovering the first cytokine too, interleukin two in 1976. Well, my colleagues and I, all these different mm-hmm. colleagues. You know, mm-hmm. and I did nothing myself alone. I mean, if we didn't have good postdocs and people working with me, I would be nothing. I mean, you know, I was in the right place and I had great people working with me. So that was true of the bulk of my career at, at certainly at NIH and right now in Baltimore. 
the Institute is filled with great people. However, they're not really my lab anymore, right? You know what I mean? It's like the Institute I direct, but I collaborate really. So that period was an enormously productive period of time. But sure, there was the experience on those wards. Look, I don't want to mention this, but my associate checked into local hotel in Bethesda with a bottle of morphine and killed himself. Because you're just talking, you know, you think you're hot shit coming out of the University of Chicago and all the Harvard guys and stuff like that. And you're in NIH, you all competed people and you're there to solve problems of the world. And NIH and all its wisdom puts me on a childhood leukemia award where all I had was defeat. It wasn't great. So I, I never wanted to see a patient ever again and really never did, except AIDS kind of forced it on me. You, you can't get away from it. I mean, they're in your face. Everybody, you know, <laughs> we became friends with a lot of people that were HIV positive. So you, you can't avoid it. But right. before that, I really, really shied away from, you know, seeing any patients, right? I have a certain passion when I get a little competitive. And then I have the passion because this is too big and too bad. So we need to solve it. But I much prefer to be working uh, I don't want to say I'm not a quiet type, but it, I really do enjoy the mystery of disease at its onset. You tell me, look, I think you're going to work for the rest of your life on multiple sclerosis. We don't understand it well. That could make me happy. What's been interesting, one of the things, first things I wanted to ask you about is that you're clearly with COVID thinking uh, a little bit differently than a lot of other people, right? I mean, I've heard you talk in some of your interviews about how the bulk of the various efforts to try to develop a vaccine are focused on uh, what you call the spike, uh, right? And and you're and the sort of traditional antibody response type vaccine, and you're going well, in. Start a with it. Yeah, you're right. You're right, Matt. And but start, both of you can start with the. You know, I'm coming across here like I'm trying to throw darts at myself, and I'm not into that usually as boomerangs. But it, it makes it, it is interesting to think about it that I start always with some bias in the bias being, I don't like to be, <laughs> however this comes out, it's not going to sound good, but I don't like to be with, with the mass, with the herd. Right. Okay? right. And too often we have herd thinking and sometimes it's right. And sometimes and very often it's not. And when a mass of money goes to certain places for decades at the expense of young people who are creative getting a chance, when you need ideas. See, I feel this way. If it's public health, it's mandatory we are a maximum cooperative. If you have an answer in your hand, and you're pretty confident that's the answer, you damn well better share it. Mm -hmm. You better be cooperative. You know, when we had the blood test, we ain't gonna say, well, all right, hold on to it, right? You know, or we're gonna, you know, or virus material that we could grow forever for the first time. We had several that we could grow forever. We're not gonna say no one else can have it. We're going to just dominate. No, that's, that would be, you couldn't live with yourself. A, a normal person, I think, could not live with that. So when it's a public health problem, you have to cooperate. You have to collaborate. But when it's in the early stages, don't listen to people who are against competition. It's everything. It's almost everything. I think Jim Watson once said it's everything. It's not everything, but he's almost right. It's a lot. Because at that point, you want independent thinking. Young people today, let's go back to HIV pre-pandemic, but they don't get funded. It's really, really hard. And is there room for creativity? Well, there's not room for much else but creativity in HIV, is there? The problem is solved of cause, of blood tests, of good therapy. Those are solved. What is needed is a vaccine, right, for the world. 
Well, with COVID, what, what was the atmosphere in terms of that competition you're talking about in the, in the very early stages? What were the different directions that people were going in? Because you went into a very unusual direction. Well, the- yeah, you know, but remember, I formed something. I co-founded the Global Virus Network. Mm-hmm. That was 2011. And Christian Bruchot, former president of Pastor, is the president of this. As you know, you interviewed him. Yeah. But we meet on telephone. We're talking to the globe. I mean, we have people from China on the phone. We're talking. Our government doesn't have that. I don't care who in our government, what Washington Post favorite son or daughter or whatever, uh, certainly not the president, of course. But anyway, they, they don't have that opportunity, and we do. And yet, no one asks an opinion. That's the facts. But we learned very early on. So why I went this direction? But let's forget the personality problem they don't need somebody arguing for the spike it's self-evident i'm not saying we don't need a conventional vaccine i mean that's been a little bit misinterpreted i had to correct i had was a bright woman reporter but she did have it in there as if i didn't believe in an adaptive immune response vaccine of course i believe in one if we have one look measles is ideal lasts a lifetime one shot right how many measles are there how many viruses do you think we have or pathogens that you can give one shot last a lifetime? Well, that's right. rare. That's r- rarer than, well, I don't know what to say. It's very rare. I mean, it's right. very, very unusual. How often do you think we have a correlative protection? As Paul Offit likes to say, the biggest correlative protection is protection. And the correlates we have, we think, such as neutralizing antibody or killer T cells or this, that, and the other, we sure let people and still is, because the mass of funding is still there for AIDS towards neutralizing antibody. Now, am I against neutralizing antibody? The first paper in HIV against neutralizing antibody is in Nature by myself and Marjorie Guroff, my associate, when I was at NCI. It's like 1984 or something. So, of course, we were hooked to neutralizing antibodies, but you look what's in your face, not what you want to believe. So there's massive money for that on both coasts of the United States, massive at the expense of what we need is creativity right now. And I can only tell you this, I've never seen a monkey experiment where we had protection that it correlated with neutralizing antibody. Thus, we got off the train. So this is wrong. You know, you gotta, gotta, gotta think of something else. Well, it'll work if you treat with neutralizing antibody. Yes, it can inhibit virus therapeutically. And if you give it, just before you give the virus challenge, you can block infection. But try doing it with an active vaccine. That's called passive vaccination. You don't get it. So we don't know how to protect against HIV to this day. All right, so now we come to a simple virus. So how did I, how did I start out and what's going on? No, I mean, I like you, just reading in the paper and fearful that we're going to all be in trouble with this damn thing. So yes, we need a vaccine. And yes, we need therapy. And no, I never was impressed by Clinton's um, hydroxychloroquine. Clinton, what did I say? Clinton? Oh. <laughs> Trump's. Freudian oh, stuff about the nature. I mean, I have to say my prayers right now. <laughs> All right, no, I don't know why. I was thinking of something related to Clinton before. So, yes. Well, I don't want to make fun of it because uh, in our institute, Dabita Zola tells me in northern Italy, some of the, you know, they got on top of things pretty well with a horrendous epidemic. People don't realize there were 220,000 Chinese there around Milan because of the fashion industry. And they went back, most of them, for New Year and then came back. So they had a wallop. But they handled it rather well. 
that's why the reward is coming to them. And part of it was not just social aid claims. You know, right away they used dexamethasone in the sick people. That's all. They use heparin right off the bat when they start getting complications. As soon as they see complications, on goes the heparin. They're using hydroxychloroquine too. So I don't want to stand right. here as like a know-it-all that I say that can't work or won't work. It wasn't the thing that I was thinking would be so very good. And we don't have data in America to say one way or another that I can be positive of. But let's say it's certainly not a tremendous drug. But nor is Tony's point and makes a you know press announcement on remdesivir. That's not a great drug, remdesivir. I mean, anybody I talk to clinically doesn't think it's a great drug. I don't think he should have made a pronouncement about it. Where is it now? Why are they talking about it now? Are you writing about it, remdesivir? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. I mean, and that's where it belongs, a little bit. It's not the right answer, right? I mean, there, are, mm-hmm. there, there has to be better things. It's a little piece of the puzzle, basically, right? One For treatment. Them, yeah. One of them could be and should be interferon, mm-hmm. the innate immune system. Now, what did they tell you what happened with me? We're not going to compete with those big companies that they decided to give all the money to. I don't know anything of the background of those decisions, but it doesn't take a genius to pick out the spike, right? The virus, the spikes, right? Meaning the shape of it. That's how it got its name, coronavirus. That's the guy that comes at the cell, the first thing the cell sees, correct? Mm-hmm. So of course you target it. That's what we, we do with HIV. They target the envelope all the time, right? We look for neutralizing antibodies. Wrong. Doesn't correlate. So we have some things to solve there that are still quasi-mysterious, but I think are solvable. And it's different than people are thinking. And if you look at the results of Lou Picker from Oregon, you see the beginning of answers. And Lou Picker's got tremendous data, but we think we can figure out some reasons why that he may not yet have arrived at and, and, and move something importantly. But that's another story once again. So let's go back to this thing. So, you know, I'm there on the, on the obviously, since we found, I founded the GVN, I have to be on phone calls with the GVN, and I'm getting more and more interested in the pandemic, and you say, you can't avoid it. So the whole institute, without me saying, you got to do it, our public health side, which are all, who are all over Africa and seven, eight countries, they're still involved in this as well. Our clinic is certainly involved with clinical trials. Kotalil, who's my partner in crime with this, with Jumakov with OPV. In fact, we just got off a nice discussion where it looks like we're going to get support for a substantial trial from a group. So, and there's two groups coming in to support. That I think Sorry, what's OPV? I don't. Oh, oral polio vaccine. Right. Okay. Right. 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 We'll come to it. Right. Yeah. right. Right. So, you know, I, we're sitting around talking about things and and uh, I realized everybody and their mother, there's 160 vaccines, they say. And I said, I bet 150 at least are going to be on the spike. And indeed they are. Now imagine you are a billionaire, Matt. I know mm-hmm. you can imagine that. You probably do a lot of imagining <laughs> at your age. And then you're imagining you're a billionaire now and you're sitting in your office like you are. Uh, what does it take if the Chinese on January 10 published the sequence? Could anything be easier? Being talked about, uh, by NIH colleagues, is, this is historic. What historic? I mean, this is ridiculous. Historic. It's obvious, right? And they don't know it's going to work, right? And if it works, you don't know how long it's going to work. This is a point I'll come back to. There's no big deal about you ordering that sequence to be made as RNA by one of about 200 different companies on Earth. You can buy it. 
if you got mm -hmm. money. Right. And when you buy the RNA, you can stick it in the muscle and it'll translate to a protein. And you'll have the spike protein, which will induce antibodies. And you suspect they'll be neutralizing because they might target the envelope. Much, much easier and much better than HIV. So the problem is solved. They won. That's what they think. That they, they right. think that that's right. But if you okay. look at all those vaccines, they're all against the spike that I know of, with a few exceptions. My wife showed me a, an article in the Post, and I say, somebody just another spike damn thing again. I don't need to hear this about this guy in Pittsburgh. I would recommend maybe a little more follow of this guy in Pittsburgh. He's relatively young, but he's taken a measles virus, and he's got a way of attaching you know spike proteins and other proteins to it. Now, the spike is not perfect for getting T-cells, and I'll come back to that in a moment. If you're going to try to get T-cells, you don't just generally use the spike, the envelope protein or the outer proteins. But in any case, um, I, I, I said, I'm not going to go back to that guy again. So I, I figured that out of 160 vaccines, 150 will be just a spike, presented in one way or another. Sanofi, they're purifying the binding site of the, of the envelope, mass-producing it, Okay. Just right. a protein. They're not doing the RNA translation. They're going to do standard technology, recombinant DNA, production of the protein, then isolate the binding site and use that. Somebody else is putting it in an adenovirus vector, replicating, another non-replicating, another will be a DNA form. The editor, own, not the editor, the owner of the Los Angeles Times, Patrick Sunchong, and his biotech companies, um, he calls me periodically, usually to, to bitch about something that he thinks he's being unfairly treated about, and we talk. I mean, I know it's a strange world that I find myself in. Right? But yeah, he's a billionaire. I'm not. <laughs> but we talk. We talk science. He knows quite a bit of science. And he's got an interesting approach. That's a little, it's a spike plus a little more. We can see what happens. Um, so I said, well, what the hell can I do in that? Nothing. Right? I mean, they've already paid him to do this. And however, we started seeing holes in it. What were those holes? Well, the first thing I heard, learned, was that bats control coronaviruses simply with innate immunity. The next thing is that um, I read a report from a Dutch group that the seasonal coronaviruses, they couldn't do SARS-2. Let's just call it SARS-2. That's what I always call it. Uh, the seasonal coronaviruses, the antibodies to the spike are short-lived. Okay. That's fact number two. Number three, we looked at the structure. The structure. Anybody could have done this on January 10th. You look at the structure of the protein. It's a lot like HIV in its glycan shield, sugars covering important sites of the protein. In mannose, a particular kind of sugar, side chains. Prediction. HIV antibodies. To, to the envelope do not last. Why? Because of that. Do we have data for it? Yep. After talking about it for about maybe over a little over 10 years and being, nobody wants to hear it because you have your candidate vaccine. You want to be somebody saying, even if you got the best, it's not going to last long. So it's a problem. You don't want to hear that. But eventually I convinced um, Tony to be listened carefully. And so I had two hours with his staff and we got funded. And we, in the midst of the funding for that, I can tell you we know why the antibodies don't last. 
when you're glycosylated in that fa fashion. So we saw this guy is glycosylated the same way. If you look at another protein, nothing to do with a virus, just a protein that has these sugar groups in a certain way, they won't last. What happens is, I, I will tell you, you don't need this detail, but I'll tell you. You, you mean the antibodies in a, in, a, in, a, in a potential vaccine won't last? Right. The B okay. cells don't mature properly into mature plasma cells in a niche in a bone marrow. Okay. They don't get there. So even if you could develop one that would work, it wouldn't, it wouldn't protect you for very long. I'm going to come to you on practicality and you got it. That's it. <laughs> and, and, that, and then I'm going to tell you something that I heard yesterday. It's not actually very nice. Uh, if you don't last, if you're not durable, you're going to get what the, the army got. Remember the Thai army trial for AIDS? RV144 is the only trial that worked. Mm -hmm. Nelson Michael, Jerome Kim, who's now head of the Vaccine Institute in South Korea, who had a place playing a major role in South Korea, and their colleagues. Uh, we collaborated with them. They have the only positive data, caused press conferences and so on. However, it crashed. So what was 60%, 65% be quickly became 30, and that was the end of it all. And when you followed their curve, I went to the press conference, I was invited, and I was the only scientist, I think, there other than themselves. And I walked out after about 10 minutes because the slide one, they showed the curve, and I said, that's it, I've seen this before. I mean, it's like, here's your protection, and it's right, right up here, and then as the, as the time is going by, it's going like that. It's time after vaccination, it falls apart. Okay, is that what I think is gonna happen here? Yes. Do I think they'll get protection? Maybe, probably will. Do I think they'll make noise? Yeah, probably will. Look, durability of an antibody is actually known by two to three years. That's when you have what's called the gamma phase of antibody development, the formation of the plasma cells. Six months doesn't tell you anything. But the study from Holland showed that the coronaviruses in general, not including this guy, they didn't do this guy, is four months. Hmm. That, that's not too good, right? So that, that's bad news. Then the question will become, do we know there's no harmful effects if you're infected from the antibodies? We don't know that yet. I'm not saying there will be, but nobody knows that. That's something that takes time to observe. You can't talk about a vaccine until you have a vaccine and you don't know you have a vaccine until time goes by. Yeah, and, and I've heard you talk about this before, right? That, that, that when the press and politicians talk about the timetable when when we could have a vaccine, it's it's they're basically it's a red herring when they're doing that, right? Like you you really never know until you actually have one that works. That's what you? I like to say. You have a vaccine when you have a vaccine. Right. In the beginning, in those announcements, I don't want to say are meaningless. They will have some meaning, but then how far you take that meaning is the question. And you have to be aware of that. After two years, you'll know. Once, that's, once they come out with something, then about a year and a half after that, you'll be able to have a nice story that sums it up well for the world. Also, the late Morris Hilleman used to say, feasibility is everything. He made most of your vaccines. Other than rabies and polio, probably all the vaccines you're taking came from Hilleman's. And he was on our board, and for years he always used to say to me, you know, the biggest correlation of protection is protection. It often doesn't correlate with anything we, we measure, and that's a good thing to keep in mind. And the other, he said, when you start with a vaccine, start with feasibility. That means cost, safety, ease of delivery, uh, ability to get it to developing nations.
Okay, That's so this gets this gets us to the oral oral. Right, oral, and I'm coming, because so I'm on the phone. Mm -hmm. I'm on the phone. I go back to being where I was. Mm -hmm. You're keeping me on straight line now, and on the phone, I'm I'm realizing that these things are probably not going to last. Very likely. Now we're seeing evidence for it, both clinical and with the seasonal coronaviruses. Now there's evidence even with these guys; they don't last. All right, so. I am also, you know, we're talking to people in China. They're get, we're getting information earlier because they're a little ahead of the curve, of course. And then um, Konstantin Chumakov is at the FDA. He's the associate director for vaccine research at the FDA. He's my partner in this, as is my colleague who directs the clinical division by our institute who replaced Bob Redfield, who became, as you know, CDC director. And Chumakov's mother didn't get credit at that time. The ladies didn't get too much credit. Made a startling observation. Her father is very. Her husband was a very famous virologist. Chumakov's father. Actually, he's one of the people whose pictures is on my wall as you come in our institute. Sabin gave him credit for the polio vaccine in Russia. Said without him, nothing would have happened. But the mother observed, in the middle of a bad epidemic in Russia of flu, that better than any flu vaccine, people were protected by oral polio. What in hell is going on here? So she published this in seven papers in the Russian literature, and finally there's one in America that gave a review, uh, one paper only, and she observed that 3.8-fold reduction in influenza if you had oral polio that year. And then other people observed it in Singapore, and then other people observed it with measles. The childhood illnesses that were infectious were disappearing. And she called it virus interference. A few years later, the cytokine interferon was discovered. At about the same time, I was discovered what people say is the first cytokine, which was interleukin-2 or T-cell growth factor, getting me closer into this stuff. But I never really got into the depths of innate immunity until now but I'm telling you how this happened step by step. So we're learning that the bats controlled coronaviruses by innate immunity. We're learning these other things, and then we find that the people who have higher levels of interferon do clinically better, and therapeutic trials with interferon have done rather quite well. And it's just not been talked about. That's in the innate immune system that's what I wanted to ask. Uh, for people who don't understand the difference, what's the difference between... Innate immunity is what invertebrates have, and we got it. Frogs, right? Yeah. Right. Everybody else has innate and adaptive. But the innate immune system, the, the people with that, and people, <laughs> the animals with that, like sharks, for example, you find <gasps> with only innate immunity. Well, what the hell is it? It doesn't take weeks or months to come, like the adaptive immune system. After your vaccine, when you get vaccinated with the spike, it's going to take you weeks to get antibodies, maybe months to get the right antibodies, maybe a month or two, and then they're going to peter out, I tell you, in four months. And the T-cell response will last longer, and hopefully that'll be the saving grace of these vaccines, that they gave some T-cell response, which was not really expected. I don't know if they'll be helpful, but they might be, and that may give the durability, if we have durability. All right, let's go back to innate immunity. Hot area for basic research today. Poorly understood. Interferon is a hallmark of it. The hallmark of it. All the interferon genes. But, so this is your 
the enemy is at the gate. The barbarians are crashing through the gate. This is your emergency response. It's like the, it's like the primitive alarm system, right? And absolutely, the, absolutely. Okay. Uh, you can look at it militarily. The adaptive immune system is the cavalry coming in later, right? Okay. The, the, the guy says, the innate immune system says, good Lord, I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. Then comes the adaptive immune response. Most infections you ward off just with your innate immunity. You get a little chill, maybe a low-level fever. That's your interferon and a couple of other cytokines. And you're, not, and you're there. You're not making, trigging off a pound of antibodies or killer T cells, which would take some months. You're better in a few days. How can you get better in a few days from your adaptive immune system? You know, not doable. So this is your innate immune system taking care of things. But is it more than interferon? Yeah, it's much more, but it's complex. We don't fully understand it yet. And it involves more another lineage of cells, not the lymphatics, but the myeloid cells, cells we call macrophage, monocytes, neutrophils. And exactly what they're doing is complicated and being worked out. Now comes the problem is how long does the innate immune system last? Answer, we don't know, but it's probably maybe two months, maybe one month, but you could boost it again and again, and we could extend it out. And then there are people who are finding that there's something called molecular imprinting, which means that the genes aren't changed, but by modifying histones or things like that, that you can have this thing last for over a year. That's what people claim for BCG. BCG is another example. What's BCG, I'm sorry? Oh, Bacillus calmet wherein. It's mm -hmm. a tuberculosis line oh, right. yes. modified okay. bacillus that's used for the same purpose. Right. I don't think it's good as OPD. We don't think it's anywhere near as good. It's not as, as much, much more expensive. You have to inject it and you get some scarring off with it. And um, it's not easily available. And we're running out of gas, not having enough of it in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas oral polio is easily available, easy to produce, safe as can be. There's not one case in billions and billions of people of a complication if the person has got pre-existing vaccination, as most of the world has today. Before there was a vaccination, one in a couple of million people got a polio. One in a couple of million. No other complications. But if you're vaccinated, chances, zero. Not many right. drugs and not many vaccines you can do much better than. Cost, 15 cents a dose. Hmm. Availability, par excellence, can be produced by biopharma of Indonesia and India, can be produced by GSK and by Chinese, and by where we got free doses ourselves, Sanofi, Sanofi Pasteur. So, you know, when we're seeing this, we argued last February, February, March, April, May, June, July. You want to see somebody that's a little angry? Me. <laughs> Konstantin Chumakov, Shine Kotolo. You know, we each handle it a little different. They really kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm shocked because everybody was excited when we talked to them about it and we didn't get funded. Wow. So now I can just, I can just tell you where we're at. We're in several foreign countries right now that are doing it. That's one. So we succeeded in some foreign countries. So we'll get data. Two, we have a few people interested in supporting us that are more private. What happened in the United States? Well, we didn't start off with nothing. Chumikov's in the FDA. He went through the FDA, got positive reception, but he needed funding before we could submit an IND. My colleague Chum uh, Kotala didn't want to waste his IND, time going. What's IND? I don't know. It's something you need from the FDA. <laughs> all, 
all clinicians know, but not, but even though I'm an MD, forget it. I don't know. It's something that you need from the FDA to, okay. when you get a, like a drug approval, you could say, well, okay. polio is obviously approved. Yeah. But when you're using it for a new purpose, right? You right. got to get approval. Right. Right. So that's FDA, but everything is, should be good there. We just, but my colleague, clinical colleague didn't want to go forward applying for something until we knew we had funding. Right. Okay. So next step is we now say, okay, let's go for funding in the United States and do a big trial. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we have something in England going on for deliberate infection. I mean, some people, including Bob Redfield, wanted us to do it with SARS too, but then he realized now that 30-year-olds were also getting sick, so he stopped advocating for that, and I was never going to do it anyway, because it would be just my luck in the twilight zone of life that I kill a few people myself, right? right. So we don't want to do that. I, I mentioned to him, his hero, Walter Reed, would be in jail today. You know, if you know the story of Walter Reed, it's... I don't. What did he do? Oh, yellow fever. He proved it. Uh, uh, he, he saved things for America on the Panama Canal, but he killed a number of soldiers in the way, volunteering to get bitten by the mosquitoes that he knew were transmitting. So, you know, you don't do those things anymore. You don't chance those things. But we have a place in London that will do flu, again, just approved in modern times, and will do uh, the seasonal coronaviruses which should impress people because there's a lot of homology between those viruses and SARS-2, but they only called, call, excuse me, they only cause common cold. So we're ready for that and we're looking for fundings. We know many people in the U.S. Army are very interested, very excited in fact, but hard to them to get to the right, you know, they tell me any GS-13 at any level in the, gov in the government can block it if it's not fitting exactly on the line of what they're funded for. So, it, yeah. I'm sorry, it's part of the problem here that OPV is just too cheap. Like, in other words, no, I'm gonna come. Uh, you're, you're getting one step, I'm almost done. You're yeah. getting one step ahead of me. Okay. The thing of deliberate infection where we could prove things in a matter of a few weeks would be cheap. Mm -hmm. it would, instead of being like 40 million bucks, it would be maybe 2 million bucks, maybe less. We mm -hmm. could get answers in three weeks' time. We still hope that, that happens very strongly. We got a lot of people interested. And let me tell you, backing us and consulting to us are can't do much higher of polio experts that we have on our committee. So we have the polio experts, both at WHO and in the United States head of committees. We have Stan Plotkin, who's an enthusiast, who's about the most experienced vaccinologist in the United States. And you shouldn't make any opinions without checking with him certain times when you're writing on vaccines. Stan Plotkin. So... The main thing was to do a trial in the United States. So we took a variety of GVN centers, Global Virus Network Centers of Excellence. So there was our, the three Caballeros, the three of us, plus we would handle Baltimore, Washington area, and then Roswell Park and University of Buffalo, and then Cleveland Clinic, and then lately we, University of Nebraska wanted to join in. So we figured that's enough because it's going to get way too expensive. But meanwhile, the rate of infections were coming down. So we need more and more people. The cost is going up. I can tell you CDC, we talked to Bob Redfield, who I obviously know. He was very excited by it. So he said, that's round one. I talked to Tony. He was there at the same time. I would like to say he was enthusiastic. I won't say excited, but enthusiastic. We got site visited by his institute. 14 people came, came on the screen like this. I can all say they were all, unless they're great actors, really excited by it. 
And then two weeks went by, we heard nothing. And I called Carl Diefenbach, Tony's right arm. And he said, in the end, it wasn't received favorably at the high level. That's the end of the story. And why do you think it wasn't received favorably? I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess the question I'm asking about, 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 let me answer part of your question. I'll sure. tell you what Tony first said, you know, he first tried the safety gangle. So I wrote him a long letter and said, this is, I don't even know how to pronounce the word, R-U-S-E, a ruse. I didn't say by him. I said, it's either ignorance or it's a fake. I said, let me tell you about that. The water supply, my ass. Okay. That, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm quoting what I said. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, this is, uh, what are you talking about? Water supply. I don't mean to I said it to him, but I mean, you know, generally discussions. I said, water supply, America hasn't had a problem with water supply in about 150 years, but let's say something more. The whole world is receiving oral polio, the bulk of the world, billions of people. Now, Indonesians, Chinese, Pakistani. Just to clarify, were they saying that there was... That yeah, yeah, they brought that up as one possibility, right? They brought up possibilities of why they were worried. So the counter is the world is getting it. Do we stop Israel? They get it. So do we say no Americans can go to those countries? Do we say that when they come to our country, they can't use our toilets? Do we say they can't drink our water? What are we talking about? They can't go to the men's room? I mean, the whole world comes here and we go there. What are they talking about? And also, in case you weren't aware, between 1962, and what is it, 60? Yeah, and 2000, every American received oral polio. You received oral polio, I bet. It's, it was it used to be a sugar pill. Now it's just a pill on your tongue. That's mm-hmm. it. Couldn't be easier to take. If I go back to work, I'm going with polio tablets in my pocket. What's the harm? We all get vaccinated against it. There's no case of, oral, of polio of any kind if you're already vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. And my chances would be about one in three million anyway. So, you know, I don't want to go back to work in a crowd and go to restaurants until I have oral polio in my pocket. You know, and it's going to work right then. In, in, a, in a matter of two hours, I'll be fine, right? I go into a crowded place, but I take a polio tablet beforehand, I'm okay. And, so, be, and it should last me for, I don't know how long, but it'll certainly last a month. And I think it'll be significantly longer, months plural, and then we would boost. So now it's getting a little bit late. It's going to be seven months since we've been arguing for this. It's, wait a minute, February, March, April, May, June, yeah, six months. So, you know, uh, that's it. I mean, I guess the, the, the question I have is, uh, so you take a drug like remdesivir, it's going to be $3,400 per course of treatment. And... Oh, you have oral polio, which you're saying is 15 cents. Is it yeah. possible that there just isn't a lot of momentum for this kind of treatment because companies don't see the, 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 the possible long-term financial benefit? I need a consultation. I need to ask Dan what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be the expert on that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, honestly, Matt, I don't, I, I don't mind a politically sensitive issue and I don't mind getting attacked by somebody because surely it will raise uh, uh, things against us. Uh, but I, I got to watch out of hurting colleagues also. Sure. And hurting the project. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I truthfully don't know. It's a bad thing to say. Yeah. Right. Because we're on the verge of a whole bunch of companies coming out with vaccines, right? Or, 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 <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And You're right. Uh, it, I, I've heard some doctors say that the, 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 
part, there's a possible future where there's you'd have to take overlapping vaccines uh, where it wouldn't just be one that would be, I mean, what, what do you think is the most likely outcome uh, like two years from now? Are we, is everybody going to be taking a vaccine? Is everybody going to be taking OPV? Is, it, is there going to be a, a, Can you imagine a, how long it will take to work out with overlapping vaccines to get answers? I mean, yeah, you're going to be confused and mm -hmm. there'll be easy. Uh, let's take the most cynical route here. Mm-hmm. I never heard of such a thing before in my life, right? Let's mix the young. We mix up a lot of things and see what happens. These are not things like a drug trial where you can get answers by measuring the titer of virus like an HIV infected people where combine A and B and you can follow it two days later. Get the virus titer, get the CD4 count, right? Mm -hmm. If you're gonna make comparisons to things like that, that's a joke. You're gonna have to wait a long time to find out what works best, right? You're going to be sick and everybody can be home. You know, they, 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 they're long gone. You won't even remember their names, the companies. I don't know. I don't know. I don't like the way that sounds, but I'm not in a position to say that it's a, that it's not rational. I am in a position to say I'm surprised and it's going to be hard to interpret. Isn't it? Anybody could say it's going to be hard to interpret. If you got, certain amount of data and then you say okay now i want to use this other vaccine and now i don't now what is causing what and if it works less is that because of the second vaccine let's try a third one let's go all around America. maybe the top five can all be rewarded you want to be a cynic i mean if five companies got a billion dollars each i don't know what they got and now Plus. they all want to we, we can't get fifty thousand I mean, really? Yeah, well, we didn't get any money, right? We didn't, get, we, we didn't even have a chance for a second comeback. I said, can we come back and just destroy the arguments that you made about safety? And then when I made the arguments, there was no comeback. Yeah. You know, we, we ended up. Does the United States have a great system for developing necessary life-saving vaccines and medicines? If, if in the ideal world, how would we improve the system that we have? Uh, I, I think oh, we really need to bring back a real good public health system that was dismantled. And I think there's a, a you know, Terry Lehrman is my board chair for the Institute of Human Virology. He's a Democratic operative. He's Denny Hoyer's chief of staff. He operates at that level. And he'll be, he's involved with Biden now and so on. Um, and um, Can you tell Biden about Medicare for all? <laughs> Sure. I have no contacts. I mean, Terry, I can tell Terry. Terry Lerman can say what things. He always does things when he needs a little. If I need a little political help, sometimes he's there. You don't like to do that so far. I haven't done that at all. But anyway, Terry and I are thinking of, I'm not thinking of, it's already started, combining forces on some kind of article like this for an editorial somewhere. And uh, maybe it should be written by pros. We're not pros in writing. and Maybe just turn it over. Uh, but we think, you know, you guys could do a great job with something like that. Yeah, I, you know, he wants me to maybe write the science part of how things could have gone better. Well, what the hell did I form the Global Virus Network for? And why hasn't it been picked up and helped by anybody at NIH or elsewhere? You know, we're now doing okay because, you know, companies are starting to donate and things like that. But we went out of the nine, since the nine years we formed it, until a few years ago, we were operating on shoestrings and everybody donating time free to it. 
like myself, like Matt Evans, who's a Madison Avenue guy in New York, who's secretary treasurer, and he works at least half his time for nothing for GVN. You know, Christian Bershaw was getting peanuts to be president. Now he's paid, partly by University of South Florida, but now we have enough to have a staff of about 10 people. So, you know, we're now moving stronger. But here's a collection. I mean, maybe someday, you, you know, you talk to Christian, but, you know, where's a collection of, we put down who we think are the greatest virologists on earth. You know, I'm tired of reading the greatest infectious disease doctor every day in the paper, you know. The greatest, there, there isn't a greatest infectious disease doctor. There are very good infectious disease doctors and maybe some great ones, but they're specialists. So we took the virologist to try to cover who's the best in every single kind of virus on earth, who are the best ones we could get. And then we add on to it and add on to it and add on to it. And there's criteria to get membership. There's criteria to be a center of excellence versus an affiliate. Now I can pick up the, we can go bring you into an office and see a map and you can say to me, last week, a new epidemic of a gastrointestinal diarrhea that's killing some children developed in Egypt. And help, you can say. Um, w, we have WHO. WHO is surveillance. Good. We don't want to do surveillance. WHO, if they know the nature of it exactly, they have a group that they can telephone. When it was, H, when it was AIDS, they didn't know what a retrovirus was. Most people didn't. They were paralyzed. WHO was paralyzed. So was CDC, actually, off record. Uh, well, no, not off record. CDC was fairly paralyzed at the time because they didn't know much, anything about retroviruses either. So, so you say, now we have experts on everything. I press a button, I'll get a light. Really, we can't afford the lights, but we'll get, you know, we'll know. Where in the world we have the best gastrointestinal experts on earth? Let's say we, say, we take six of them. And we say, you six, concentrate on this. Do a report. Tell us what you think. Now, if it takes money to send them there and to work, we need help usually, right, at that level. But we have held annual meetings, an annual course for underdeveloped nation people in virology uh, in Baltimore, and an annual meeting somewhere on earth moving. It's been in Russia. It's been in China, for example. It's been in a lot of different countries since 2011. We have a, every 10 days an international call with everybody on the phone from Australia, Singapore, China, um, Europe, and East and Mid-United States. Then the West Coast and I forgot what other part of the world gets another call from Christian that I'm not involved in. So, we, you know, I, I get up at 5 in the morning to be on the 6 o'clock call every 10 days, and we review everything on Earth. And, you know, why hasn't the world grabbed onto it? But it, it stuns me that the world, everybody's saying, we don't know who to ask. I say, oh, my God, you know, if that's the biggest crisis we have, how can you listen to your government when every government differs one from another? Doesn't that say it all? Well, that's, it, that's, that's another question I want to ask you. It, compared to the response to HIV, ha, has there really been a lot of progress towards creating that exact, exactly that kind of global response to, uh, I mean, no, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. I had an editorial that I was going to send to LA Times that Patrick asked me about. And it was, you know, what does the word pandemic mean? It means all, right? Mm -hmm. A pandemic has to be all in together, girls, right? I mean, if you're going to jump rope, everybody's in together. Remember that thing? They have to, everybody has to be together in it. For God's sakes, this is something that you can't have one country doing one thing, one country another. There has to be a coordination. 
U.S. has to get along with China. There is no choice. I mean, I'd like to be a tough guy, too, with China in some respects, right? Not by harming Chinese-American authentic postdocs and students just because once they had to serve military service in China, they're suddenly spies now, which is absurd. It's another story for Rolling Stone, right? You got a lot of good stories coming up. <laughs> let, let me be editor for a day. <laughs> I changed my job. You take mine and I'll take yours for a day. So that was the argument for it. Pandemic means all. That's what the title should be. And we it don't have that with COVID. All of us we, together. We're not, we're not having a unified global response. Oh my God, no. And if you follow, you say, well, I have to follow the government. Well, go to Sweden and follow Sweden. And then go just a, few, you know, a little bit south and go to Germany or North Italy. It'd be the opposite, Right. I mean, so, you know, well, was there that with HIV AIDS at the beginning? How long? did No, it take I don't think so. Well, one? you know, no, I think, no, it's just a matter of helping people who needed help. The variation was how much money you're willing to give. And until W actually, George W. Bush, there wasn't much. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's the kind of the hero of the money aspect. Our Institute is a major recipient of, of funds for helping Africa since it started, PEPFAR started. So we are in eight countries in Africa. We were in Haiti. We were in Sur the Surinam, whatever it is. In Suriname, yeah. Suriname, yeah. You know, I don't know how much you want to avoid the politics question, but how does like Ronald Reagan's role in HIV AIDS compare to Trump's role in Corona, right. in COVID? Uh, what I can say about Reagan is, honestly, I was too busy to notice. And I never was hindered. I wanted to know that. I was at NIH. I was at the National Cancer Institute. I was always left alone. I can't say I get all the money I wanted, but Vince DeVita was the first the director, and then came Sam Broder, and both were very supportive to me. In fact, I don't like to go to meetings and things like that, and I was required for this, that, or the other. And DeVita used to intervene and say, leave him alone. He may find he's going to find some things and things like that. He respected that. And DeVita was a chemotherapist in cancer. And he could have taken the pathway that I had no right to be working in this problem, really. I mean, I'm using taxpayer money, right? But we could argue there was Kaposi sarcoma and there was lymphoma. So there was cancer with HIV. Right. And he knew we, that I kept insisting it's going to be a retrovirus disease. And the NCI was the only institute, not Tony's, that had retrovirology. They didn't have anything in allergy infectious disease. It was all in NCI. And I had the most significant group, actually. It fell into our lap, honestly. You know, we had T-cell culture conditions, and, you know, we had discovered interleukin-2. That's T-cell growth factor. So we had the ability to grow T-cells. What's AIDS? The clinicians tell us they made the contribution. It's a disease of CD4 T-cells. What does interleukin predominantly do? It grows CD4 T-cells. Wow. Number two, I'm doing retrovirology that causes leukemia, but if they vary, they can cause immune disorders and repression of bone marrow. And then Jim Kern comes and gives a lecture. He's now dean at Emory School of Public Health. He was CDC. He could not do any virology, but he was clearly thinking infectious disease when a lot of theories were not. You guys don't know that, but... Many of the theories were immunological, complex theories, and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, a specific bug, there were some people thinking that way, but not that many. And I'm thinking a specific bug and a type of bug, a retrovirus. 
And Kern gives a lecture. We're not working on it at all. I'm working in cancer. And at first, there was like six guys in New York, six gay men in New York with AIDS. And so I'm not going to change the field of cancer research to that, which has haunted me sometimes because unfairly people quoted it as I wasn't interested because it was gay men. My God, it was because there were like six gay men, you know, and I'm not going to change from leukemia research into working on something that involves six people. But when Kern came back a second time, it was clear this was major. And then he said, where are the virologists? And in, with all modesty, I thought he was talking to me because he was looking at me. And I said, okay, you know, walking back to my lab that he's right. You know, it is a virus disease. And what did he just tell me? He said that the modes, that he said that the risk groups were patients, the loads of human retroviruses in Haiti. We knew that. Heroin addicts, mm, drugs, blood. Blood transfusions, blood again. Sexual promiscuity. Well, the HDLVs are transmitted by blood, sex, and mama to baby, which he also pointed out that babies of mothers were having it too. So, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, I mean, I get credit for, you know, like a creative thought. I don't think it's very creative. I think it's self-evident if you're me. What, you know, you got T-cells in your hands in one hand, you're working with retroviruses, and this guy gives you the, you know, CD4 T-cells and plus... Now, the risk groups, that's perfect. So we started. With, with COVID, we're, we're, we're similarly at an early st uh, stage of trying to understand what, the, what this disease is. Are there, are there similar, obviously this is nothing like HIV, which was much very more. hard for people to understand. It was a retrovirus, which was new in itself, right? This is a much more of a known quantity, but are there, are there particular uh, qualities to this disease that you find unusual or, or mysterious in any way? Yeah, yeah there's no, not mysterious, but certainly unusual. But no, this is a simple virus compared to HIV. Much simpler, much infinitely easier to find. Obviously, it's not really kind of a discovery. It's in your face, right? You, mm -hmm. you, know, you scrape it off your tongue and <laughs> snick in the mouth. An acute virus infection is usually pretty straightforward, pretty simple. And the genomes are usually pretty simple. Uh, this one's a little more complicated. It does a lot of, out of one big stretch of genetic information, it chops up a lot of different proteins, you know? Uh, like any RNA virus, it mutates. And, but you would say basically it's a cytopathic virus that's common. You know, they kill cells that they invade. So it's not mysterious. But what is strange is the extensive um, diversity of the disease organs that it hits. And a great deal of that has to come from its, undoubtedly its receptor. Because the receptor is in the endothelial cells, you know, you've got a lot of tissue targets for this virus. The shock was the blood clotting, for me anyway. And what the hell, blood clotting. You know, that's a major part of pathology now, is the blood clotting. As I mentioned to you, the Italians use heparin in anybody who's getting sick, right off the bat. Right. And they're yeah. doing, they seem to be doing better than we're doing in our patients. So, you know, I try to follow that as I can on the, you know, within the GVN. We don't do that. We wait until after the fact, it seems. But they're doing very early treatment with um, heparin. So that was a, definitely a surprise. I didn't expect the central nervous system or the cardiovascular extensive abnormalities that are being picked up now. That's a surprise. After that, 
what's surprising about an acute virus infection. It's mag only other thing I can tell you is its chief characteristic, its magnitude of contagiousness mm -hmm. is really quite spectacular. That's it's, it's rivaled only by something like inf influenza, right? Basically, right? I mean, it's, it's that's right. Influenza. I mean, maybe the bubonic plague. <laughs> I, I don't know. Smallpox, right? Mm. Smallpox. So to, so to bring it all back, the, we're at a stage with this where we're about to hear all these announcements. We're hearing about drugs like AZD-1222. There's all these sort of hopeful announcements that are coming out. Would you, would you just caution people to uh, – is your, is your idea that people should just be – pump the brakes a little bit on being very, very excited about an announcement that might be coming? After going go, – soon we're in the – well, we are. Uh, China announced in December or January. Mm -hmm. You know, we before long, we'll be at three quarters of a year. With modern technology, I don't think it's anything to brag about that we have some drug candidates coming. Right. Why were people announcing about drugs? I, you, you want to try to do it with a little bit of humility. It isn't great speed that you're talking about. I mean, I don't want to say this, quote me, but even the name Warped Speed Committee. Right. It's right. pompous, unless you leave out one word. Right. Speed. <laughs> Please. Warped <laughs> Committee. Yeah. I did say that to them when I talked. In a way, the, committee, the scientific advisors were laughing. But I said, this is the Warped Committee. I said, <laughs> I said, you can't help it. I mean, be a wise guy sometimes. But uh, isn't it surprising we don't have an antiviral drug after we've gone through HIV? HIV was historical, right? Mm -hmm. There never was a therapy against a systemic viral disease because it was not thought to be possible. That's because they don't have metabolism of their own. But then the age of molecular biology came, and when HIV came, you could think molecular biologically that you knew stages of replication of the virus. Therefore, you could target with laser speed or laser, not speed, laser pinpointing. Precision. Yeah, pre exactly. With laser precision, you know, an, uh, an antibiotic, you're, try you're hitting a bacteria's metabolism, right? It's a big bomb. But, you know, you know, what do you have to target with a virus? Nothing. Well, you thought. But then when you know its steps are several, you can try to target what's key to the virus more than key to the cell, right? Mm. And that's what happened with the breakthrough, which was not the cocktail, which the media got terribly wrong. The breakthrough, I mean, I don't think anybody wanted to tell them that, but um, the breakthrough was not 1995 and the clinical trials that captured Time Magazine and everything else. Although that's what people would start to feel so much better with, but the breakthrough was 1985, was AZT. Mm -hmm. AZT showed for the first time in the history of medicine that you could treat a viral disease with objectivity showing virus decline with, with the systemic improvement, CD4 T cells were rising, so you had objectivity. And that brought in the pharmaceutical industry for the first time en masse. With the mutations of this drug, have they... Have with the they, virus. I'm sorry, with this virus, yeah. Have they uh, worsened or bettered the outlook? Uh, no one on earth can yet say that that I know of. Okay. If they are, they're not speaking at the GVN meeting because we hear from everybody on earth, including, you know, Chinese and the Singapore, a lot of experience in 
my own lab itself, Davida Zella, Z-E-L-L-A. Uh, Zella is following this like a hawk with his colleagues in the University of Trieste in Italy, and I'm getting lots of reports regularly. And we, we see hints that some things may be correlating with making things worse. Yet, for example, he has some data that um, the, the, the protein known as NSP1, non-structural protein number one, which is important for the virus's ability to cause disease and to escape from the immune system, is mutating. And that 1% of the strains now have that mutation, which should make it less lethal. So what I see, it's going both directions. Things are getting, some strains are emerging less lethal, some strains are emerging that could be more lethal. And it depends who wins in the end. So far, there's not a clear pattern of how it's going, to, how it's happening. But like any RNA virus, this guy mutates. Not as much as HIV. Not nearly, but it mm. mutates. And is it possible that we're, we might it might end up being a thing like influenza, where they're going to have to come up with a new yes get, guess every year? Uh, and, yes, okay. but I think it won't be because so much of the mutations is as it will be the durability. Okay, right. So I think they're going to be, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm giving you an opinion, but it's an opinion based on what, what I told you were facts. The corona, the seasonal coronavirus, that's fact. It's in the literature. Okay. So that durability angle from the seasonal coronavirus is four months, max five. So that's one. What we see in the literature of people's antibody titer to the spike compatible exactly with that. Mm. So, you know, I, I would say the structure, the structure is more hypothetical, but yet it's what we see. You know, if you see this pattern of glycosylation, you know, George Lewis, we're sitting here, my colleague, immunochemist, he would be more vigorous about it than me. He, said, he would say, well, oh, shit, you know, this thing is obvious. This guy don't, can't see in front of him. This is not going to last. It can't last. You know, he would be very vigorous about it. Hmm. We can't say we know that's, more hypothetical based on what we've seen before. Could this be an exception? It could be, and I could be wrong. But I think when you put these things together as each of them is fact, you got to say that the odds of this not being durable are really significant. Is there a possibility that the, using OPV in conjunction with, with one of these other uh, viruses, uh, vaccines that are in development, could that also be a possibility? Is that yeah, you know, that's what we were really offering a stopgap to get you back to work. And then hopefully they'd have something that then extended. Now, and if that got into a problem, we could come back with this. Mm, I of see. course. Why is this avoided like the plague? <laughs> I don't know. You know, you raised the question. I don't want to think that way, but you know, I don't know. I just don't know. But there's right. other things that are going to come out pretty soon too. You know, Denmark is doing Guinea-Bissau. They're doing Colombia, South America. You won't believe it, but Iran is uh, contacting us throughout this thing because of the GVN, and they're doing 130,000 people in Iran. Um, a trial? Yeah. yeah. And wow. Indonesia will be doing things, and um, Russia is already seven weeks in. But Russia is taking... This is with OPV? Yeah. All mm -hmm. I talked about was OPV. Russia's, we don't talk about it because it's no data in our hands yet. Russia's in the wrong province, though. That's in an area where they're hardly getting any infections. So I don't know what we're going to get there. And then there's Mexico and Brazil talking to us, and that's where we are. And then in the United States, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. 
what will happen. Maybe when maybe with one of these uh, wealthy foundations or trusts, maybe something will happen. I don't know. Well, it is puzzling. It is puzzling. It sounds like you've you got some exciting things going on. Can, can yeah, you, well, you know, I, yeah. I mean, it's not the only thing I do, but I tell you, getting money is really takes a lot of time. And one guy, this guy, rich guy today on the phone said to me, you know, this is all political crap. You know, he says, you know, you got to get used to it, Bob. It's, it's this politics. It's the way it is. This is the way he was looking at it, telling me, you know, get over it. It's all politics. It's usual. And I honestly said to him, it's not usual for me. I'm not used to this. Mm. And I haven't had this kind of thing before. You know, I was at NIH, and when I left NIH, you know, in NIH, I always had support. I, you asked me about Reagan. I didn't answer the yeah. question. So I will answer the question now. I, I didn't have any troubles. I got support. But I had Vince DeVita, NCI director, and he believed in me. So I never had trouble. But, was but there what do I think about uh, Reagan versus the current? Well, I, I think Reagan's a nicer guy. <laughs> <That's what> I, <laughs> oh, yeah. He had a much nicer smile. I trust him more. Well, if there, if there was any difference in Reagan, the problem of ideology and the blood test would not have come one day earlier, no matter what Reagan did. Let's start mm. with that. We were supported. We solved the problem of the cause. We made the blood test. Not allergy infectious disease, not Tony's Institute. We did it. NCI, my lab, period. And with the funding that we had, right? And mm -hmm. we never were frustrated on funding. Roop and Paris had their own funding. We were connected for quite a while. Okay, we had the patent problem. But that's the only place I would say they left me dangling and they lo I lost four years. That's another story, but I lost four years of productivity. The key, the key period of my career was lost. Four years. Four, I would use vulgar words right now if you weren't there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what I would say. Four something years yeah. we were lost. And uh, it's hard to live with that for a while. You know, I was the anger level was off the charts, and et cetera, et cetera. However, and the government just let you hang there. That was that was true. But Reagan was by then gone, so I don't even hold Reagan. Is but you still have an interesting question. How about for the rest of the world? How about for the social issues? How about for the educational issues? Right. How about for the hospital issues? How about for taking manhood, womanhood, whatever you want to call it? And saying to surgeons, you can't stop patients with AIDS coming into the hospital, which I saw. They blocked mm -hmm. me. You know, you'd say, I said, this is not contagious across the, you know, you're not going to get it from somebody, you know, sneezing at you. This kind of ignorance was going on too long. Right. Right. So that could have taken presidential leadership. What I'm saying is our lab sure. at that time was not hurt. It was hurt right. later it was right. for different reasons. And you know, it's Trump. I mean, it's just, I don't see how you can compare him to anybody. But why do we use governments? Period is my question. Forget Trump. Would I listen to the president of Sweden? Do I listen to any president? Why would I listen to a president of what, you know, health? And why do I care about his closest advisors? That's our national advisor. And so what? I will do just as well going to my own university or Baltimore. Just let me take the city of Baltimore. I think we have public health there. I think we have Hopkins at the University of Maryland. I'll get, the, I'll get my advice there and on the phone with the GVN. Jesus, I mean, why do we think central government is going to be expert? Since when do we have major laboratories of research in the central government and downtown in Washington? And when Bethesda 
where do we think all this is happening? I mean, there are individual labs doing individual research. We have a whole nation of experts, you know, all over the place. Maybe we don't have a way of bringing them together. Well, uh, we hope your uh, work with the innate immune system uh, produces some results. I'm really anxious to hear what the what the yeah. results of all those trials are in those countries. Uh, that sounds really promising. Uh, and uh, we definitely wish you luck with that. And thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Katie, all. did you have pleasure. anything on this? No, just what's, no. The time, what's the timeline? When are we going to be? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't know. Ask, uh, ask my friend Tony. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. You, say you, say, you can even say I said to ask him that he knows the answer. Thank you so much. And uh, all right. It was take, fun. I enjoyed yeah, it. it was great. All right. Okay. Take care good now. Bring your, good job. All right. Bye. Wow. That, that was a lot of uh, interesting information. Yeah, he's uh, so you might need a glossary for some of that. Yeah. Um, but you know, look, I mean, his, his basic idea, I think it's really, is really an interesting one because, you know, we're on the verge of hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth of research coming to quote unquote fruition. There are these companies that are coming out with vaccines and they're going to be announced with great fanfare and the vast majority of them used a strategy that he described that, you know, might have been a little hard to follow, but there, but it's like sort of the traditional idea about how you fight a virus. Uh, you create a specific antibody to fight the virus. And he and a few other people have gone in this other direction that focuses more on like the primitive immune response, immediate one. And it uh, sounds like, you know, that that could be an interesting idea if anybody could actually get money to fund it i don't know yeah and obviously for 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 viewers and listeners who don't know um he was involved in a controversy a pretty significant one uh in in the 80s over the question of like who actually got the credit for discovering hiv and we'd be remiss to not mention that but uh look all the same this is he's regardless of whether he was the one the guy or one of many or yeah i mean was was the guy the french whatever it, that, that was a huge controversy for the scientific community. Right. I think for you know the the, the um, civilian population for the civilian population, the concrete result of all of yeah. that stuff was that somebody discovered the virus. They, the, uh, a bunch of people were all working on it rel- right. relatively at the same time. The notion that it was uh, a retrovirus. I mean, he talked a little bit about the mistake they made in thinking that it was another version of HTLV, right. which was the one that he discovered, um, how that got them on the wrong path for a while. Right. It was, the, they, were, they were cousins, not brothers, right? Right, yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the fact that they discovered a blood test uh, early, you know, probably saved uh, a ton of lives. And, you know, I mean, the the thing that he talked about with AZT, which I I never knew before, which I thought was really interesting, was this idea that, you know, even though the drug itself didn't actually cure uh, AIDS, the the fact that they got a drug that allowed them to to concretely measure the, you know, the, the level of virus in the body and to sort of take this quantitative approach to looking at how sick a person was, mm-hmm. that that was the big breakthrough. That's really interesting. I'd never right. heard that before. So uh, that's obviously not going to be the situation with COVID, but it's just interesting the way that uh, people like that think yeah. about these things. The, you know, the question really is like, 
are these drugs going to be, are these vaccines going to be effective? And is there a cynical motivation in just right. producing something that, as he, you know, I mean, his whole point about durability is like kind of terrifying, right? Like, what if people come out, what if some company comes out with a vaccine and somebody declares victory, which they'll, there's definitely going to be like a political temptation to do right. that. Uh, and a whole bunch of people take this vaccine and then right. three months after that, they they start getting sick. Like that, that's something I don't think that anybody's really thought about that as a possibility yet, but that, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, you got to write and, about it, Matt. Well, like somebody the biological has to. equivalent of Trump winning. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I thought it was also interesting how inherently political this stuff is, like how there is a kind of universalism required in the response. Like you, well, like you, there is. I mean, you can't really like nationalism doesn't really work when you're fighting contagious diseases. Sure. Yeah. No. That that's true. I think that's always been true of science, though. The science scientific community has always sure. viewed itself as being international. Uh, the issues are really logistical, right? Like, how do you get funding? Uh, who does the funding? What 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 kind of bureaucracy do you have to go through to get to do your research? Uh, it's it, it is interesting that all these years after HIV which was like a, a global phenomenon, we still don't have anything like a, a global, you know, a, I mean, his, his what the, they're trying to approximate something like that with the global virus right. network, but it's not, we're not tuning in every day to hear a panel of the 10 biggest scientists in the world telling us what the progress against the, the disease is where everybody in each of their own countries is turning into their own political leaders which doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. Right. What do they know? It'll be too bad if if they're if they don't end up with some kind of some kind of system for dealing with these issues that's better than the one we have that's fragmented and unfortunately led by us who which has this stupidest stupidest research system in the world in terms of how we fund things and that. You right. Know. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll see you all next week. And we have uh, an interesting interesting guest next week as well. So uh, talk talk to you then. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.